GTFM. Headspace. GTFM's mental health and well-being program. It's okay not to be okay. So then, good evening. Welcome along. This is March's edition of Headspace, GTFM's mental health show with me, Colin Dixon, in partnership with Kuntaf Maganu Mind, Valley Steps and Kuntaf Maganu University Health Board. On this month's show, I'm shining the lights on Eating Disorders Week. I have two special guests on the show this evening. James Downs, who's a mental health and eating disorder campaigner, writer and expert by experience. He'll be discussing his experiences and discussing eating disorders generally. I'll also be talking a uh, taking a medical professional perspective with Dr. Anne Harrod Banner, who's a child dietitian and CAMS specialist, talking about how early intervention is key. Also, along with taking a look at a, a close look, should I say, at Eating Disorder Week 2021 and the charity Beat. Away from eating disorders, I'll be chatting to Neil Pimer, creative director at Ardman Animations. And if you're wondering if the name Ardman sounds familiar, then uh, they are the creators of Shaun the Sheep and Wallace and Gromit. Neil will be talking us through their new campaign, What's Up With Everyone. We'll also be hearing from the First Minister, Mark Drakeford, as he spoke to Brad Williams last week about mental health and the view of the Welsh Government. And new for this month, I'll be bringing you my tip of the month to promote well-being, along with all the contact details for the topics we've covered this evening. As always, you can be involved with the show. Uh, it would be good to get your opinion or thoughts on any of our topics this evening. Just to give us a text or a WhatsApp on 07935 245 325. Or you can give me a call here in the studio this evening, 01443 404 404. You can also email me as well, colin at gtfm.co.uk. Right, let's get started then. Headspace. GTFM's Mental Health and Wellbeing Programme. So then, the 1st to the 7th of March is Eating Disorder Awareness Week. It's run by an amazing charity called Beat Eating Disorders. It was founded in 1989 as the Eating Disorders Association, and their mission is to end the pain and suffering caused by eating disorders. They provide support via a helpline uh, for people who need it most. Uh, if you're not too sure about eating disorders, they are a really serious mental illness that have the ability to ruin and sadly far too often take lives. Around 1.25 million people across the whole of the UK suffer from a wide variety of eating disorders such as bulimia, avoidant or restrictive food intake disorder, that's commonly known as ARFID, or other specified feeding or, or eating disorders that's known as OSFED and anorexia, anorexia which tragically has the highest mortality rate of all the disorders. The focus on this year's Awareness Week is binge eating disorder. And I just want to play you a little clip from Beat, um, trying to explain a little bit more around binge eating disorder. You might think you don't know me, but you probably do. I could be your sister, your husband, or your neighbour. I'm one in 50 people who will experience binge eating disorder. And there are some things I want you to know. I don't binge because I enjoy it. I binge because I'm ill. I'm not overindulging because it's fun. I hate it. I've even stolen food or eaten from the bin. One in three of us gets so desperate we consider taking our own lives. One in six of us attempts it. More of us live with binge eating disorder than anorexia or bulimia. But because most people don't take our illness seriously, Asking for help is really hard. With the right help, we can get better. 
I'm not quite there yet, but things are definitely improving with support. I know I can make a full recovery, but it would have been easier if I'd asked for help sooner. It would have been easier if more people knew what it was like to live with binge eating disorder. You can help people like me by getting involved with Eating Disorders Awareness Week this March. Find out more on the BEAT website at beateatingdisorders.org.uk slash edaw. Let's start the conversation and help change lives. It's a very powerful message, isn't it? You can uh, watch that on the Beat Eating Disorders website. That's beateatingdisorders.org.uk. Like other mental health illnesses, stigma is a real challenge for people to overcome with. Uh, 32% of people face stigma and misunderstanding every day in the workplace. It takes, on average, 27 weeks for eating disorder treatment to start after the first visit to a GP. And many believe that eating disorders affect just women. However, this is not the case. Up to 25% diagnosed with anorexia and bulimia are male and 40% for binge eating disorder. And there isn't enough investment in research. Only 96p per person is spent on eating disorder research. And if you compare that to something a bit more serious, to, uh, to cancer, for example, it's £228 per person for the research in cancers. It's clear to see that eating disorders are complex and there's not one single cause, but scientists and medical professionals are still learning about the different types of disorders, but they've concluded so far that it's highly likely to be a combination of biological, psychological, social and environment factors. Eating disorders are not about food, though, which is kind of a common misconception. Instead, eating disorders, be, uh, eating disorder behaviours are a way of coping or feeling in control. As I said, to find out more about BEAT, visit beateatingdisorders.org.uk where they have a raft of great information and resources. We're going to take a quick break and after that, I'll be speaking to my first guest, James Downs. This This is GTFM. So we're looking at eating awareness disorders this month and uh, as it's Eating Disorders Awareness Week. And my next guest, James Downs, has first-hand experience of eating disorders and has been campaigning about these issues, working closely with charities such as Mind and the Royal Society of Psychologists, as well as speaking in public about uh, his struggles and eating disorders just in general. I'm pleased to say that James joins me now on Headspace. Good evening, James. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. Yeah, I mean, as well as can be at the moment. It's very strange times we're living in, isn't it, at the moment? But this does seem to be a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. (laughs) Definitely. I feel like we're in a bit of an in-between time. We're kind Mm. of not here. We're not there yet. And it's sort of testing our patience. But we're kind of be appreciative of the little things. So this week is Eating Disorder Awareness Week. And I think some people, when we talk about mental health, a lot of people do instantly go towards stress and anxiety and depression. They seem to be the more prevalent ones. But eating disorders falls into the category of mental health as well, doesn't it, James? And I'm sure there's a lot of different categories of eating disorder. But can you give us a bit of insight into what is an eating disorder and how does it get categorised? So I think you're right that we've got better at talking about mental health in general, but it tends to be more at the end of anxiety and depression because I think people can relate to those maybe a little bit more. And when it comes to things like eating disorders, people don't necessarily have the confidence to talk about them or they think that they have to have a lot of specialist specialist knowledge to talk about eating disorders because they can see quite obscure or quite frightening um, and people just don't perhaps feel confident to talk about them in the way that they do about depression. 
And I think that actually eating disorders don't require a lot of specialist knowledge for us to talk about them mm. because yeah, we all have mental health. And for some days it's good, other days it's bad. It goes up and down for all of us. And for some of us, around one in four of us, it will become a problem over the longer term, which would be a mental health problem or a diagnosable problem. So we can all relate to mental health because we all have mental health. It's just in different degrees. Mm. And when it comes to eating and food and exercise and body image, well, we all have a relationship with those things too. And I think we forget that. Like we all have a relationship with food and eating, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. Because we all have to eat to survive. And that goes up and down in all of us. Sometimes we have better relationship with food than other times. And sometimes it's more organized. Sometimes it's more disorganized or disordered. And I suppose for some people, that becomes a really significant problem where it affects their quality of life causes them a lot of distress and makes them really unwell. And that would be a diagnosable eating disorder. Mm. Um, so I suppose it's that sort of line between when is it disordered eating and when is it an actual eating disorder? And that's when something impacts your life in a significant way over a period of time. And there are different kinds of eating disorders, but I think it's always more important to remember that not one size fits all and that everybody's experience will be different. Yeah. So, People often think of anorexia as, you know, the image of eating disorders. And actually, anorexia, where you restrict your eating and have a very low weight, is actually under 1 in 10 people with an eating disorder. Oh. And so 90% plus of people with eating disorders don't have anorexia. But I think the way we've understood eating disorders, the way we've talked about them, we first of all think of anorexia. Mm. And we first of all think of women, for example. And we know that eating disorders affect people from all different kinds of backgrounds. And they can look in lots of different ways. Most people won't be visibly unwell. And binge eating disorders are much more common than restrictive eating disorders. So bulimia and binge eating disorder um, are characterized by eating large quantities of food, like much more than just a little bit of overeating. And in bulimia, people will purge that food, so either vomiting or laxative abuse, exercise, things like that. And in binge eating disorder, they won't. So there's a big um, correlation with binge eating disorder and obesity. And obesity isn't what we would think of when we think of eating disorders, but actually yeah. a lot of people have psychological factors behind obesity. So I suppose my definition of eating disorders is quite broad, but I think that it means that we can all relate to it and that we can all kind of understand what it might involve. And it doesn't have to be this sort of obscure condition. And when you're thinking about maybe supporting somebody else with an eating disorder, it's always more important to listen to them mm. and what they're going through than to know what the different diagnoses are, I think. Because, yes. you know, even when you look at anxiety and depression, there might be a, a number of symptoms you might have. And one person will have this symptom, another person will have another symptom. Yeah. And it's similar with eating disorders. So we can't put people neatly into boxes, yeah. um, although that can, that can help sometimes, I suppose. <laughs> Um, but it's always better to listen to people's actual experiences if you're trying to help somebody. You were mentioning around the anorexia side of things. Do you think that's mainly in the in the in the forefront of everyone's mind? Because that's the more of the stories that we hear within the press, for example, especially when you hear of celebrities or models who may be diagnosed with anorexia. And I, I think that's kind of that's the where people instantly as soon as you say eating disorders, they go, right, okay, yeah, that you must have anorexia. But like as you say, there are other elements to that. So is there a danger that 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 it's being glamorized within media for example 
Yeah, I think that, you know, if we have a stereotype or, or a typical image of what somebody might be like with an eating disorder, that's going to come from stories that we've been told, and that's mm. really normal. And I think that the media has been quite good at telling stories of, of particularly women with anorexia, and that seems to be the the narrative that we have. And, you know, we can't blame people for thinking that eating disorders are skinny, white, middle-class probably teenage girls. Um, and we know actually that's not the reality, but that's the story that's been told quite well. Mm. And what we need to do is to start telling more and more stories of diverse people and, and other people having their voices heard too, so that people will then not make assumptions and judgments and have those stereotypes. And like you said about eating disorders being glamorized, I think that there has been some of that. And there's also been sort of a trivializing element to that, which says that, you know, eating disorders are maybe like a diet gone wrong or they're a fad that happens to, mm. to young girls. And and the media in the past, especially, it's gotten a bit better now, but have sort of bandied around the term anorexia quite a lot and, and almost portrayed it as though it's been a bit of a lifestyle choice for people. Yeah. And we know that eating disorders are not a lifestyle choice. They're really painful, lived experiences for people and they're very serious mental health problems. But I think that... You know, if we're going to change that narrative and start to tell a different story that actually reflects the reality that, you know, around 25% of people with eating disorders will be male, eating disorders are raising, sort of rising faster amongst black and minority ethnic groups than they are amongst white groups, right. you know, then we have to start allowing spaces for, for more people to tell their stories so it's more accurate. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, you, you normally, and I, I don't mean to stereotype, but when you think of eating disorders, you do think that it is, you know, females, but it's, it's interesting to hear that males suffer it from as well. And I remember watching Freddie Flintoff, actually. He had his documentary on BBC around bulimia, and I never knew that he suffered with bulimia and it's it's quite interesting isn't it that you know it's very you know it's very well hidden eating disorders and i thought that was really interesting and kind of inspiring as well as well in the way that he was very open and honest about what he was fighting yeah i think that we need to have these people in the public eye who are able to talk about their problems not you know not that that's a good thing but he's suffered from that but it does give other people permission to talk about their problems too and i think that's what i really admire about what he did with that documentary and it sort of opens the lid on a problem that is so well hidden mm. because like we were saying earlier most people with an eating disorder you're not going to be able to tell from looking at them that they have problems with food and eating because they're not going to be physically underweight or they're not going to be visibly unwell necessarily so i think that it does really help when you can break that silence yeah. and i think that he did a good job in in showing that eating disorders might happen to the last person you think of somebody who's so successful somebody in the public eye a man who's you know physically very fit and mm. well in that in one sense that you know he's an elite sports person but i think it just goes to show that eating disorders can happen to anybody and we can't make these judgments i think that you know having grown up as a, a man with an eating disorder people around me did struggle to understand that this could happen to me and that wasn't just you know my friends and family and my school it was doctors as mm. well you know and i had some really sort of ill-informed things said to me like you know why do you want to be skinny because only girls want to look skinny boys yeah. want to be muscular and 
And I think that shows that, you know, there's a lack of understanding and there's a lack of training about mm. eating disorders, actually, that I see in my work with the NHS that, you know, most medical students will have one hour's training on eating really? disorders in their whole wow. undergraduate degree, in their whole, in their whole qualification to become a doctor, they'll have one hour. And, Gosh. you know, we see that eating disorders are rising dramatically and they're quite common when you compare it to other conditions and, to have you know one hour of training isn't enough so it's no wonder actually that doctors don't have a very good idea and they might you know bring their own prejudices because mm. they don't have the training but eating disorders definitely happen to men too they might look a bit different men might have more problems around wanting to be very muscular mm. and a drive towards being very muscular and there are other you know differences in it you know we often talk about how women might lose their periods well that doesn't happen to men but other things happen to men and we need to have that reflected yeah. um, and we need to be talking about that too because i don't want people in the future to be like me and feeling that they're completely on their own and i wish that i'd had somebody like freddie flintoff talking in the media when i developed an eating disorder and um, when i was younger because i think it could have helped yeah and that's you are right i mean it does feel like i mean we know there's stigma across many i mean you can probably get a paintbrush and cross it across all aspects of mental health can't you in terms of that but it seems even more so more prevalent within the eating disorder categories or areas I, i don't know which is the right word to describe them but you know that as a as a male struggling through that disorder that must have been difficult for yourself to kind of seek that you know get that support and get someone to actually understand what you're going through surely it's uh, it, it sounds like a very tough time it was really hard and i think that when it became obvious that i was really unwell people did struggle to recognize that i had anorexia as a man and i had every physical health test under the sun because i think the doctors were like it can't just be anorexia there must be something else yeah. wrong with him because this doesn't happen to, to boys i think that would have changed a bit by now but mm. like you said there, there's a lot of stigma around eating disorders and i think a lot of people around me couldn't understand why i couldn't just eat or why i had to you know why i struggled so much really when i could understand what was happening to me but we know that people don't think their way out of mental health problems and i think what i'm trying to say is that people thought i was quite bright mm-hmm. and that therefore i shouldn't have any mental health problems well we know it doesn't work like that and i think with eating disorders historically they've been viewed as you know maybe a, a female condition where women were sort of written off for their problems as just being hysterical or when we think about binge eating we think it's about a lack of control and people are just greedy yeah. and these things i think are in the background when we're thinking about eating disorders and sometimes i've had people i've heard people describe people with eating disorders as manipulative or attention seeking oh, wow, and i gosh. think that those attitudes do still exist mm. in some areas of society and I, i wish that people could try and think about it from the other perspective that actually somebody with an eating disorder is really suffering and that you know they might be very defensive yeah. if somebody tries to help them and take away their way of coping because mm. an eating disorder is a way of coping and it's not a very healthy way but it's there for a good reason and when somebody tries to take it off you then you might naturally be quite defensive but that's not out of being manipulative that's out of being really scared yeah. and and actually you know really suffering so i think we need a lot more compassion when we think about it and 
binge eating disorder, it's not because somebody's greedy. It's probably because there's some really difficult emotional drivers of that behavior. And it's so easy to stand and judge and say, oh, somebody's just greedy. But actually, we know mental health goes a lot deeper than that. Mm. So I wish that people could not make those judgments, I suppose. Yeah. And I mean, you, I, I read a stat that said that uh, during lockdown, the number of eating disorder referrals have, have kind of rocketed. And we're going to be speaking to uh, Kuntaf Maganu Health Board. One of their dietitians is going to be joining us a li- little bit later on in the show to talk around what they're seeing from a health yeah. board perspective. But it kind of worries me as well, because more and more people now is turning to social media, looking at news stories and such. But I, I read something, it was on the, the Beat Eating Disorder website, around like Instagram, for example, the Finspiration posts and stuff like that really can't help if you're struggling yourself and you're looking at these pictures of of what is perceived to be the, the, the correct body shape and such like that. I mean, they've got to step up their game, surely, to kind of try and get rid of this, you know, because that's feeding into the stigma as well, isn't it, really? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a couple of things in there. I mean, I work with NHS England and the Royal College of Psychiatrists, mostly looking at like what happens in, in the services here in mm. England, although I'm from Wales and I have my treatment in Wales. But we've seen in children and young people basically a doubling of the number of people being referred for help for eating disorders. And I think that, you know, that obviously means we need more money to, to fund the services and to yeah. see these people. But I think you're right about some of the factors like social media that might be playing into that and i think that companies like instagram and tiktok and and all these platforms that i'm too old to be on now (laughs) tiktok is to be honest but i think that they need to be more transparent at least about where this content is coming from Mm. because it's really difficult sometimes to know like what what is the agenda behind that content or when you flag something um, or you complain about something as potentially harmful they never really seem to do very much about it and I think that sometimes with eating disorders people are not like people with eating disorders their needs are kind of overlooked and we see that with things like dieting programs and channel four had that lose a stone in 21 days program not that long ago and I think that you know that might be an appropriate message for some people but it has to be done in a sensible way but what about the people that that might harm I guess. And I think Mm. that all this constant messaging about diet culture and that, you know, obesity is one of these major things we have to tackle, especially with the pandemic. But I think that needs to be done in a more responsible way, which recognizes that, you know, the drivers of our eating behavior are as much psychological as they are sort of biological. And that would help people with obesity and people, people with eating disorders having that psychological kind of approach. But you're right about the, the rising number of referrals and And I think trying to create a positive environment, you know, at home, on social media, in the classroom, wherever it is, is so important. And and these days, a big part of people's environment is their digital environment. Mm. And, you know, if that's giving them really difficult messages, then that can be, you know, so hard to to work against if that's all that you're seeing. I think we see that a lot with male body image as well. I mean, women have had messages given to them about their bodies for decades and decades that they need to be they need to look in a certain way they need to have this size this shape and everything you see that more and more for men these days there's mm. similar pressures around body image and you have to look in this particular way and perhaps we're not as equipped to push back on it i think as men we haven't 
sort of mobilized to say, no, we don't have to be like that. Yeah. Whereas our body positivity movement, you know, and so we can learn a lot, I think, from feminism and we can learn a lot at how to support each other and think that everybody um, is beautiful and we don't have to all look in a certain way. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's a great point you make there, James, because I, you know, on the flip side of social media, I see a lot and my, my girlfriend follows a lot of, of young ladies, not, you know, fairly like mid to middle age ladies who are just demonstrating body confidence and they're they're trying to debunk the myths that when you look at a picture online whether it's maybe on a social media or even on a website and such everything's not as it seems and there's very clever camera tricks you can do to make yourself look thinner and and make yourself look completely like all these filters i mean i i mean gosh i i can't use a filter i'll break it if i if i go on there but you know but these, these ladies are really inspirational and very brave to actually put themselves out there and go look this is who we are and you know Get, get on with it type thing you know it's kind of like this is us why do we need to change what we look like it's and yeah. that, that's kind of refreshing to see i think so and i think it's about expectations and whether people have realistic or unrealistic expectations and i think that you know maybe we could all have the perfect greek god sculpture body <laughs> if we all went to the gym all day every day all had a personal personal chef yeah and you know what how would we work though you know we, we have to yeah. have jobs i think a lot of these people who um are showing these you know their beautiful bodies or whatever on on social media that's actually their job mm. and, and that's their job to be like that and they put a lot of time and effort into that and i suppose we have to ask ourselves well is that what we value the most in the world is yeah. that what we're going to dedicate all our time to and also like we can't be comparing ourselves to people who do that full time when we have other other things that we're doing or maybe we don't have very good health or mental health or working in other jobs just to just to make ends meet so mm. i think it's about having realistic expectations and if you know everybody feels they have to look in this way when it's not really achievable for everybody with the time that you have then you know most people might be able to brush it off or it might make them feel a bit sort of embarrassed about their own bodies but for some people it might encourage them to reach for quite extreme methods and that's not everybody i'm not saying that you know a magazine or an instagram post is going to cause an eating disorder but i think for some people it might reinforce at a deeper level that you know they really need to look like this to have worth mm. and they might reach for quite dangerous methods to get there so i think that we should take it seriously it shouldn't be terrified of it but we should be able to talk about it yeah absolutely and, and i think as well you're quite right in saying that you know that the, there are triggers aren't there which are out there which could either exacerbate the, the situation or even could trigger the start of that and what just uh, I, I wanted to actually turn to uh, the actual eating disorders because there's quite a few um, different categorizations different diagnosis on there but what what would you recommend if you felt like you were struggling? And this might be a difficult question, actually, because I suppose in your own mind, and you may relate to your own experience, James, that actually you think there's nothing wrong because you think that what you're doing is right and you're making yourself look good or, you know, you're, you're, you think you're he eating healthily. How, how do people identify whether they've got a problem in terms of their eating habits or eating disorders as such? Yeah, so for some people, I think that they don't recognize that they have a problem until it's kind of at a critical level where they're really unwell or people around them are noticing and it can be quite difficult actually for people to say look i think this is that you've got a problem and the person may not think that they have a problem i think there's a real sort of difficulty there but i i suppose thinking about whether you have a problem with food comes down to things like 
you know, how preoccupied are you about food and eating? If it's the main thing that you're thinking about all day, every day, well, that's probably not really appropriate for the society that we live in because we do have ready access to food pretty much. You know, if you were a hunter-gatherer and you were living in a famine and thinking about food all day, every day, because you didn't know where the next Mm. bit of food was coming from, that might be appropriate. But these days, that's not really appropriate. So it's a kind of sign that, you know, maybe there's an overemphasis on food and eating. And I suppose as well, you know, if the way that your body looks or your shape or your appearance is a really big part of how you value yourself as a person, then that might be a sign that actually that's a little bit too rigid because, you know, your number on a scale does not define how much you're worth as a person and we're all worth, you know, an infinite amount as human beings. But I think that we can start to sort of equate a certain weight or a certain shape or a certain look with being either successful or attractive or or whatever it is. And there's some truth in some of those things because society tells us we need to look in a certain way. But when it's really like the be all and the end all, or there's a lot of anxiety perhaps in changing the way that you eat. So I think a big sign about eating disorders, especially restrictive eating disorders like anorexia, is that if you are very rigid Mm. about your eating behaviors and you find it really difficult to go away from that rigidity and to be flexible about your eating, that might be a sign as well. So I know that for me, like, I like to be quite sort of prescriptive and have my meal plans and everything. And sometimes it's a challenge just to be spontaneous and be like, oh, I'll just go out and have that. And, and I guess that's because I have that history of the eating disorder. And it was a sign when I first developed anorexia that, yeah, I was only eating certain amounts of certain types of food. Mm. So I think that it's down to some of those factors. And obviously, if your physical health is suffering because of the way that you eat, um, then it's probably not um, a healthy kind of diet or a healthy relationship with food. It could be be one or the other or both. So I suppose those are some of the key things. Obviously, if you're making yourself sick or using laxatives too much, things like that, that would you know, be a sign as well, because that's really not healthy for anybody. And it's not normal. And it can become really normal. If you're used to it, like you said, you might not know there's a problem. That's just normal for you. Yeah. Um, but it's not, not, you know, however long you might have been sick for, it's, it's not normal. And um, it can change with the right help and the right support. I think that's important. And also exercise is a big part of eating disorders for some people. And I worry about people who, you know, are very rigid about their exercise Mm -hmm. as well as their food. And I have friends who go to the gym every single day, a certain amount of time. I mean, not not going to the gym physically at the moment. And, you know, social media tells them that, they're smashing it and they're, they're doing great. And, you know, they're posting every day that they've been to the gym and they've done this and they've burnt these calories and everything. And those people, I'm not saying, well done. I'm like, are you okay? Yeah. Because is that, is that a bit rigid? What would happen if you couldn't go to the gym that day or you couldn't do the exercise that day? Would you be in distress? Mm. Um, And that's probably a, a bit of a clue because we should be okay to go without for one day. You know, and and some people, they really have to do it every single day. Or, you know, we should be able to overeat one day and then sort of it balances all out um, in the mix. But if it's very threatening to change your behavior, then that could be a sign that it's too rigid. Yeah. Um, And so it's probably 
even I haven't Maybe thought worth thinking about eating disorders. Yeah, and even I haven't thought of that because I've got friends who are exactly like that, and they go to the gym all the time, and uh, you know their schedules are around the gym. And I've never really yeah. thought of actually saying, actually, you know what? Yeah, you are. Gosh, you 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 know you're bulking a little bit there, aren't you? But actually, like you said, turning around to them and going, "Are you actually okay?" Because I know that some of, some of my friends, uh, if they miss a day, that's it. They're like, "Oh my gosh, I need to do double effort tomorrow," or you know, and it's kind of there's this massive panic around it that says, "Oh." I I need to get back on track and that's kind of worrying isn't it if if, yeah. if if you lose that rigidness like you say and that's what i worry about particularly with men perhaps with with eating disorders is that you know i think there may be quite a lot of men with sort of eating disorder symptoms who do go to the gym a lot but would never think that that was an eating disorder because it's so reinforced by society that that's a good thing and i i used to go to the gym every day before the first lockdown i used to get every day and I have not been back since mm. when I've been able to go back because it's, I realized actually, no, that was, that was part of holding me back from recovering and that I needed to be more flexible about it, more psychologically flexible about it. And I think of some of the guys who I would see every day in the gym doing the same things, exercising a lot to the point that they were injuring themselves and still exercising on top of the injuries, Gosh. having all these different protein shakes and everything, mm. same things every day. And I, and you know, good, good for them if that's what they really want to be doing. But my question, I suppose, would be like, is that what you really do want to be doing? Or is, is that what you feel that you have to do? Maybe because society told you to do it or whatever. But I, I think that, you know, maybe deep down, some people are not actually that happy doing that. And yeah. I, I used to force myself to exercise when I was really tired. And one of the big things in my recovery was, you know, going to the gym, being like, actually, I'm really tired. I don't want to be here. I'm going home. Mm. Um, and not forcing yourself to it because otherwise it's very punishing and I think a lot of people's experiences of eating disorders are quite punishing that you're depriving your body of something whether it's rest whether it's food nourishment in in different kinds of ways so I think that you know if we broadened out our idea of of eating disorders we might think that actually a lot of people could do with thinking about their relationship with exercise and food um, and making it a bit more healthy even if they don't have a diagnosed kind of eating disorder so really what i want to get onto next then james is if we can just to talk about the support and how important uh, having a great support network but also what what support is there out there for someone who may think or are going through an eating disorder at the moment so I think that it's important to say that there is support out there. There is a lot of support out there if you can find it in the right places, but it might vary depending on where you live or what kind of access to services that you have. And I think in some of my work, I've seen that some areas don't have as good treatment as others. And I've had quite difficult experiences of trying to get access to care in the NHS, for example. And so I just don't want to, you know, brush over that as a reality for a lot of people who can't get the help that they need. But I would say that, you know, always think of going to your GP and talking about your problems. If, you, if you're worried about anybody with an eating disorder or you think that you might have problems yourself because GPs are able to manage eating disorders and think about how to support your physical health and your mental health in the community. I think that there could be more training for GPs, but if you do have a good GP and a good relationship with your GP, that can make a big difference. And it's always worth them knowing, yeah. I think, even if they can't always give you the help that you might need at the moment. And then with 
within the NHS, there are different services that you can be referred to. So when I was in Cardiff, I was referred to the specialist eating disorder services there when I was really unwell. Mm. I think there are a lot of other organisations that provide a lot of good information and support. So I would highlight Mind, who have really good support and advice pages. They have really good information about eating disorders. So if you were thinking, oh, maybe... I have an eating disorder or maybe somebody I know seems to have some of these signs and symptoms, then have a look at their pages because they can explain to you some of the different kinds of eating problems and also how to be a good supporter and a good friend to somebody, which doesn't require you to be an expert. It just requires you to be good at listening um, and to show that you care. I also do a lot of work with BEAT and BEAT is probably the main eating disorders charity in the UK and they have not only a lot of information but they also have quite a lot of different services that people can access so they have lots of different helplines and they have different support groups that you can access online so they have different support groups for people with anorexia people with bulimia or binge eating and families and carers as well so Mm -hmm. i think it's really important to remember that carers and families play a big role in supporting people with eating problems especially when they can't get access to services or there's quite long waiting lists which is the case in some areas so i think you know accessing beats support really important really really useful information they have as well as those like direct services that they have too so i'd recommend those two first off mind and beat and also thinking about sort of other things that can keep you as well as possible and it's i'm not being trying to be patronizing or anything but i think that you know sometimes it's about thinking outside the box a little bit when you can't get rapid access to to care and i think things that have helped me have been you know my social support network that's really really important and thinking about sort of what friends you have and whether you can talk to other people about your eating problems because i think you know, if you don't have that support in your day-to-day life, then it's going to be much more difficult to think about recovery or managing your health. So thinking about, you know, which friends have you got who you can talk to? And if, if you don't think of any friends, then thinking about, you know, reaching out to these support networks with BEAT and, try, you know, peer, they do a lot of peer support. So you might mm-hmm. be able to meet people with similar experiences. That can be really helpful. So, yeah, there's a lot out there. Also, trying not to be overwhelmed by information because, yeah. you know, it's that thing of when you go on the internet and you start reading about things and you're like, well, I've got all these problems. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and then you diagnose yourself with everything. It's about sort of just thinking about what sources are reliable. So I think going to Mind and Beat, they're really good. Well, there's lots of other good stuff on the internet, but yeah. there's also a lot of stuff that you just don't know where it comes from or it can confuse you and i think it's really support a really important fact that you the, like your friends and family go and seek that advice as well because I, I know just from a not from an eating disorder but just from a mental the other mental health like from stress and depression that actually as as a support person for that for the for the individual it's you kind of get a bit on eggshells of what to say or how mm. to conduct yourself around them or whether or not you could even bring the subject up which i think is probably even more scary when you're talking to someone about how they're eating because you know fundamentally it's like well we all eat but actually you know you might be eating too much or you might be eating too little or actually you might be eating it and throwing it back up in essence and and yeah. that could be a very difficult and awkward conversation so i i would i think that's highly recommended for the support networks to get yeah. and get that information isn't it Definitely. And I think that people are frightened of talking about eating disorders or saying the wrong thing. And, 
you know that if you're trying to support trying to support somebody then you obviously want to help them and you want to help them improve their behavior and 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 you know if somebody's not eating you want them to eat it's really natural but you can't make them and you can't force them and if you do try and force them it's only going to get their backs up i suppose because mm-hmm. you know people have to want to do it for themselves so i, I guess my advice if somebody was supporting somebody with an eating disorder or, or that they think they have an eating disorder is not to be really forceful and not to say you have to do this and you have to do that or you know if you don't do this you're going to be really unwell I think it's about taking a step back, recognizing that, you know, you're not a therapist, you're not a specialist, you're not going to fix somebody, but you can listen to them. Mm. And actually what people really want sometimes is to be listened to without that threat of, I'm going to take away your coping mechanism. Yeah. Because if we think about eating disorders as coping mechanisms that might have just gone a bit wrong, you know, and I've realized in recovery that, yeah, my eating disorder was a coping mechanism because if I controlled my food and my body, I didn't have to feel certain other feelings that I didn't like. Mm. I didn't have to feel a lot of anxiety because I was kind of safe in the eating disorder. But, you know, if, if you're asking somebody to stop doing that and stop using that coping mechanism, that will feel threatening and they do need a lot of other support and a lot of other skills instead. So I think if you can support somebody by listening you might help them to make the changes later on but i think that people find it easier to make changes and easier to accept help from people if they can trust them mm. so showing somebody that you can just listen to them you can talk about food eating like in a really general way where you're not forcing somebody to change and where they might be able to talk to you about how they feel about it yeah. rather than just what they're eating what they're not eating but actually like how do they actually feel about it then that could make a massive difference for them and that could stop them from feeling so isolated because eating disorders are really lonely and really isolating experiences and they're very private experiences mm. a lot of the time so i think that you know you might not think that you're helping very much or doing anything practical by listening but by listening you could be completely changing the direction somebody goes in yeah. um, and you could really help somebody towards recovery it's building that trust isn't it because i, I mm-hmm. I've, I've, from what i've been researching and reading prior to us chatting to the, to this evening you know it, like you said it, it's some most eating disorders are hidden away and you know mm. it's if you've got that individual who you trust and will listen and not judge then actually you can start to build that confidence to go oh it's actually all right actually and i can i can let myself go a little bit to to get people to understand what i'm feeling and 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 all that kind of uh, support that you need around that without the need to be feeling like you need to hide it away because the rest of the world is judging what's happening yeah. from there I, I just wanted to turn to recovery and I, I, and you might correct me if i'm wrong but i i kind of feel like with with all types of mental health eating disorder is probably one that is kind of just needs to be managed rather than a full recovery and it's never going to happen again am i right in 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 saying that or is it is it is there a like an end state where actually you're having no longer of these thoughts it doesn't you you know you you kind of i don't want to use the word normal but you know there's there's kind of some normality in your everyday life yeah i think that's such an interesting question and i don't think that we have a really good answer to what recovery is in eating disorders because, I mean, we'll all have a relationship with food and eating forever, so long as we're alive. And I suppose we need to get a better idea of what a healthy relationship with food looks like. It's that same with mental health, isn't mm-hmm. it? That, you know, we ask questions about mental health and we're very good at saying what mental ill health is. 
But what is actually good mental health? What does that look like? And I think that, you know, this is the sort of flip side of it, isn't it? So I would say that recovery from eating disorders is completely possible. And it is possible to move on and have a life without disordered eating at all, where it's no longer a part of your day-to-day life, where it may crop up and you may slightly relapse sometime in the future because you might always be vulnerable to that yeah. in the right, you know, in, in certain circumstances. But it is completely possible to, to recover from all types of eating disorders, but that is usually possible with the right help and the right support. Most people don't find their way through it like completely on their own because we do need support just as like social animals, I suppose. Mm. But you're right in that a lot of people think that eating disorders are kind of just there with you forever. And once you have it, that's that's kind of it. And that's something that I was told when I was growing up that, you know, you'll live with this for the rest of your life. And mm. it's not a very positive message. It's also not accurate, but we do need to get better at giving support and we need the nhs to be able to give treatment quicker for people and we need to do more research actually into what works because whilst recovery is possible the rates of recovery are actually quite low Mm. like we know that around you know in the best case scenario if you get good treatment kind of at the right time then you've got about 40 to 50 percent chance of recovery which is not great Mm. Uh, it's not like you know it's not like a jab or a vaccine that's like 95 percent effective you know so 40 50 percent in the best case isn't great it's a good start but when we look at the research that's been done into treating eating disorders there's not been very much compared to other mental health conditions and then when you compare it to physical health it's hardly anything at all so for eating disorders it's the least has the least amount of money spent on it in research of any mental health condition even though we know anorexia is, has got the highest mortality so i think that you know it is possible to recover from an eating disorder but in the future it will be even easier well, it was not easy at all now but you know it will become easier in the future when we have more research and when we have more resources to help people to get better and i would like to give that positive message that recovery is possible but if you haven't recovered like many people do live with eating disorders for a really long time, it's not your fault. It's not your fault that you haven't recovered at all. It's just that you haven't had the right support and that we don't know enough about what works. And I think when I look back at my experience, I blamed myself for not recovering. And I think that wasn't the case now. It was that I didn't have the right support. And when you blame yourself, it only makes the shame worse. And we know that shame drives the eating disorders. So I think that if people could like let go of that a bit that that might help yeah it's that vicious circle isn't it and it's once you're in that rut you you seem to can never get out of it unless someone drags you out really uh james it's been wonderful to speak to you i could speak to you for hours across all of this subject i just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time and being so open and candid around some of your experiences i really do appreciate and i'm sure our listeners as well appreciates that james downs thank you so much for joining us on headspace it's been an absolute pleasure take care of yourself and i look forward to speaking to you again thank you so much Thanks for having me. Headspace, GTFM's mental health and well-being program. Taylor Swift on GTFM. It's Headspace, GTFM's mental health and wellbeing show. My thanks to James uh, for joining us this evening. Um, such a great conversation and such insightful as, and, as well and very 
I, I found when I spoke to him very brave in how he came across and, and spoke so eloquently about the struggles he faced uh, through that. Uh, if you do want to find out more about James, uh, he he's on Twitter, um, so you can go and uh, check him out at James L Downs, uh, and he also has a number of blogs and, and websites as well that you can go and check out uh, and read what he has to say uh, on there. Um, also as well, just a reminder of the Beat website, beateatingdisorders.org.uk, if you do need to read up on any support, or if you just need to speak to someone as well, uh, if you are struggling, or if you think that you're struggling, and we talked about um looking at some of the triggers and some of the feelings that you might find uh if you are having or experiencing an eating disorder and such so you can get in touch with uh with with beat uh, you can talk that through and then also get in touch with your gp as well it's really important early intervention is absolutely key and after the news we're going to be speaking with Dr. Anne Harrod Banner on how that key, how key early intervention is uh, with eating disorders. Um, it's, that's a, a really insightful conversation as well. Uh, she's part of the uh, Come to Afghanistan Health Board and their CAM service, and I explain all all about that after the news at eight o'clock. Don't forget as well, gtfm.co.uk. We'll make sure we put all the information you hear this evening on there for you, uh, and as well, um, we'll try and put it on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash gtfm one zero seven nine. After the news, we're going to be speaking to Neil Pimer from Ardman Animations. That's in regards to their new campaign, What's Up with Everyone, and also as well, the first uh, Brad Williams from Valley. News caught up with the First Minister last week and we'll be listening to what uh, Mark Drakeford had to say around mental health and some of the uh, actions that the Welsh Government are taking uh, in focusing on mental health post-pandemic. So make sure you join us all for that after the news at 7 o'clock. Headspace, GTFM's mental health and wellbeing programme. It's okay not to feel okay. So welcome back. It's myself, Colin Dixon. Hope you are very well and keeping yourself safe this evening. Uh, still to come, I'll be speaking with Neil Pimer from Ardman Animation about their new campaign. Uh, what is called What's Up With Everyone? And listening to what the First Minister said to Brad Williams last week regarding mental health. For now, though, we're still focusing on eating disorder awareness week. And throughout this pandemic, the new number of referrals in children and young adults have significantly increased increased around 29% uplift uh, at the moment current stats uh, out there currently and as we heard from James before the news getting help is really key to starting on the road to recovery Cumtaf Maganug Health Board uh, has a specialist child and adolescent mental health service it's commonly known as CAMS and Dr Ang Harrod Banner is a specialist within the CAMS service and a children's dietitian and I'm pleased to say that Ang Harrod joins me now how are you? I'm good. Thank you very much, Colin, and thank you for inviting me. No to problem. Evening. Quite worrying times at the moment in terms of the number of referrals. I, I read a stat that said, I think it was about 29% increase on referrals into GPs for children who may be suffering with a, a, a eating disorder, really. Um, what's What's been the driver of that? Has it been purely lockdown, Anne Harrod? 
I think the driver has been locked down, Colin. You know, young people have been without school, without routine, and they've really, really struggled during this time, as as, well, as we all have, but mm. I think particularly for our young people. And, you know, there's not really, wasn't, well, last year, there wasn't really much for them to do, was there? I mean, and so young people were focusing uh, more on healthy eating, maybe on exercise. And for some, this developed into unhealthy obsessions and then a diagnosable eating disorder so it's it's been a really worrying time and absolutely re- referrals have have rocketed i mean i've got some some local stats in that i mean in our Bevan, in their cams service they had a rise of 73 percent of referrals wow gosh um, so it's it's really yeah very concerning and the inpatient unit in bridge end mm. usually have six or seven beds taken up by eating disorder patients and they've currently got 13 or 14 wow. beds so it's yeah that's quite worrying isn't it and is it purely down so you when you look at the reasons why it's happening what are the triggers that are happening so we you mentioned it could be born out of maybe boredom not having a lot to do and such like that but does i, I take it social media has a, a big impact on on some of this referral as well maybe I'm, I'm not too sure what's the triggers are you seeing yeah, absolutely. Again, you know, due to that lack of routine, no schooling, not really, you know, not really much to do at all. So people are turning to, to more social media and there's some really unhelpful sites. They're mm. not validated and people are looking at that as, as a source of information, a source of entertainment and unfortunately getting unhelpful messages via social media channels. I mean, that's really not good for children who are easily influenced by by social media at the moment. What? So what... What's the the role you play then, Anne Harrod, in terms of because uh, I know that you're a dietitian. What what where do you come into the into the scene? So I work with a CAM, a CAM service, and so I am seeing patients with eating disorders and helping them on that journey. So it's it's looking at meal plans, it's getting them back on that right path to what is healthy eating and and eating for life. And sometimes it's re-educating these young people in terms of have such distorted images of, of portion sizes and that kind of thing. It's actually just kind of bringing them right back and say, this is what healthy eating is. This is what your body requires. And it's um, looking at looking at that and, and facilitating the weight restoration of these young young people but it's not just about you know the, the, the physical side of it it's very much the mental and the behavioral and re-establishing those healthy healthy lifestyles yeah absolutely and, and i'm sure there may be some parents listening this evening what would you be your advice if you were a parent and you're suspecting that actually my child may be showing some kind of signs that there is uh, an eating disorder and we know that eating disorders are very well hidden you don't quite know that they're going through it do you so what would your, your advice be to parents who may be listening this evening I would say firstly try and talk to your child see if they will talk to you about you know with, with, with your with, with parents' suspicion, can they perhaps have that conversation? Start that conversation off as, like you said, it is very secretive. They may not be willing to talk. I think the next protocol is going to the GP and seeking advice from the GP, as well as looking at the BEAT website. The BEAT website has a huge amount of information for parents and also for those GPs who perhaps are less aware of eating disorders. There's information for GPs as well, which the parents can actually, you know, take along with them to their to their appointments. And, and I do think, you know, 
there is a lack of education amongst GPs. Obviously, they're dealing with lots and lots of diagnoses. Mm. So it's, you know, if you do are concerned, it's kind of pursuing that because we know that with early intervention that recovery, you know, recovery is possible and early intervention is key to that recovery. So if you are concerned, keep, keep, you know, getting checked with the GP. Perhaps it's just monitoring, you know, their weight Mm. and, and going from there. And, and how easy is it for referral, Anne Harrod? Is, is, that, is that process pretty simple or what are the steps that someone would need to take, either a parent or maybe it's a young person or children listening this evening? So that the referral into a CAM service would come via a GP. Okay. So that's, and, that, and that is a very straightforward process. And what we don't want is GPs delaying that referral. If there is a suspicion of an eating disorder, then that referral should go in. Okay, and and that's great advice. So if you are listening this evening, you think, oh, you know what? Just it, it is all, of, and it's the same across all mental health subjects, isn't it? At the moment, it's just talking and and trusting that one person, maybe two people in your life, that can help you seek that advice or actually get you into where you need to be from there. What does so once we they, they've been referred, what does the recovery look like, Hannah Harrod, as they're going through that process? Is it is it is it medication or is it a psych, psych, psychology or what does that look like? So it's it's quite a long process. And I'd say, you know, don't expect necessarily a, a quick recovery. It can take many, many months, sometimes years. And the approach is very much family-based therapy with a family-based therapist, with a specialist uh, nurse, and as well as that would be, you know, dietetic intervention as as needed. For some, uh, medication is needed. For the majority, no. But it's very much on an individual basis. But you get to know the team really well within CAMS. They're very supportive, and and there's there's lots of support out there once once you're in in the service. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's and that it is it's great and it's a lovely team to work for fantastic yeah, no brilliant and it sounds like you, you guys do an absolute amazing job there looking after the the young people and the children who who come through and and suffering with these eating disorders and harry just before we finish what i'd like to ask is what would be your top tips in order to kind of keep yourself kind of in a great well-being state and 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 how would you eat properly for example <laughs> <laughs> Eat a wide variety of foods. You know, don't. You know, I I I love cooking. I love cooking my kids. I love eating. You know, we enjoy all kinds of different foods, and that's really important. As well as drinking, you know, appropriately, as in water, perhaps not the maybe the other um, beverages. So keeping yourself <laughs> well hydrated, eating regularly is really important, and yeah, also getting out and getting some fresh air. I think it's really really good for all of us. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, my dog has never been walked so much through lockdown, that's for sure. So <laughs> she won't know what to do when I end up going back to work. <laughs> uh, and Harrod, thank you very much for joining us this evening. I really do appreciate the time. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll make sure on our website at gtfm.co.uk, we're going to link through to that Beat website that Anne Harrod talked about. There's some great resource on there. And uh, yeah, everything you need to know about eating disorders is all prevalent there as well. And Harrod Banner, thank you very much for joining us on headspace this evening thank you very much thank you colin gtfm headspace gtfm's mental health and well-being program
So, a few days ago, uh, Valley's News' Brad Williams spoke to the First Minister of Wales, Mark Drakeford. He touched upon the subject of mental health. The Welsh Government have since published their vision for a health and social care system which is fit for purpose and is built around the following principles. People are healthier and happier, health and care services are better and easier to access, and health and care services are innovative and use the latest technology. Staff in health and care are looked after and motivated. So let's have a listen to what the First Minister had to say to Brad. Well, uh, you know, I think if the question implies that there's going to be a long goodbye to coronavirus, then that is the view that I take too. Uh, I'm afraid I do not believe that it's the sort of experience that in one leap we'll be free and it'll all be behind us. Uh, and even when you know the physical impact of the disease has diminished... Uh, the mental and well-being impact of it is going to last well beyond the public health crisis itself. So the Welsh Government is already putting in place strengthened mental health and well-being services of a whole variety of sorts. I really think one of the things we've learned in the last 12 months is that you've got to offer access to those services in a variety of different ways because what suits one person definitely doesn't suit somebody else. So we have a 24-hour telephone helpline, for example. It's right through the day, every day of the year, including Christmas Day. And some people, that's what they want. They want to pick up the phone and they want to talk to somebody and they they want to know that they'll never need to meet that person again because they may want to say things to them that they wouldn't want to. So for some people, that works. Other people want to see somebody who they will meet regularly. They want to build up a relationship. They want to be able to return to topics. Young people, particularly, are big users of online support services for mental health. You know, exercises that people can be given to do, uh, techniques that people can learn. So our approach is to try to make sure that we strengthen the whole range of ways in which people can get help in the future. What we need to have is people able to make the choices that they know will work best for them. So thanks to the First Minister and also Brad for for that interview. We're trying to get the Minister for Mental Health and Welsh Language onto Headspace at some point, a Leonard Morgan MS, uh, to talk about what the, the Welsh Government are focusing on around mental health and just to hear her opinion on how she's going to tackle things over the next few months. So keep this tuned to us, hopefully, over the next few months. We'll get to speak to a Leonard Morgan. <laughs> That's air and all I need on Headspace, GTFM's dedicated mental health and well-being programme. Still to come, I'm going to be speaking with Neil Pimer from Ardman Animation. Yes, the creators of Wallace and Gromit and Shaun the Sheep uh, are talking. is talking to me about their new campaign, What's Up With Everyone. But first, uh, a new pioneering project to support the mental health of children and young people who may have suffered adverse childhood experiences is being piloted in Cardiff in the Vale of Glamorgan. The Resilience Project is an 18-month initiative that is being rolled out in primary and secondary schools led by the Cardiff and Vale University Health Board in partnership with Mental Health Foundation as part of the Welsh Government's A Healthier Wales vision for a seamless health and social care sector. Welsh Government transformation funding has been provided via the Cardiff and Vale of Glamorgan Regional Partnership Board and the new psychology-led project sits alongside the Health Board's existing child and adolescence mental health services, that's that CAMS we were talking about earlier, and works jointly with local authority education departments. It's already directly helped a 
147 families and trained more than 500 professionals. As I mentioned, the project is supported by the Mental Health Foundation and is aimed at building the mental health resilience of children and young people through educational settings, as opposed to the more typical clinic-based alternatives. It's been achieved by providing new resources and bespoke training for education staff, as well as clinician-led consultations for education staff. The project also provides group work in promoting children's mental health, as well as direct interventions with children and their families. The Resilience Project's clinical lead is Dr Gwen O'Connor. She's heading up the team of dedicated professionals, including seven resilience workers who are all graduates with relevant training in mental health, three clinical psychologists and an occupational therapist and an arts therapist and a project manager. Dr Gwen O'Connor said the Resilience Project has been set up to provide early help to those uh, those children and young people beginning to display distress but who do not meet the criteria for other services. It's breaking new ground because we're bringing together education and the clinical knowledge of and skills from health to improve the mental well-being of children and young people. What we're seeing is that the increased confidence of those working with children and young people in terms of their mental health is resulting in children getting help sooner in their school community, which should reduce the number of children needing referrals to clinic-based child and adolescent mental health services. Dr. O'Connor also had it. There has been a long, uh, there's been long, uh, there has been long been an appetite for joint working between health and education professionals. And now, through the dedicated resource, we're developing a more joined-up approach, reaching those who may have otherwise slipped through the net. Jenny Burns, Associate Director for Wales at Mental Health Foundation, went on to say, Our children and young people's mental health needs attention now more than ever. Those who have experienced difficult childhood experiences particularly need our attention because of the long-term effects on their health. The Resilience Project has navigated a new way to connect directly with teachers and the children and young people they work with to help offset mental health issues developing or deteriorating. The Mental Health Foundation have been delighted to help shape this project with the Cardiff and Vale Health Board to the success that it is now. As a result, the Resilience Project in Cardiff and Vale to date have 147 families have received direct interventions. 136 consultations were delivered by Resilience Project psychologists to education staff. 555 professionals have accessed Resilience Project training and 237 uh, professionals have viewed Resilience Project recording training online and 44 bespoke resources have been developed for education staff, children and family. The Resilience Project falls within that that Healthier Wales, which is the Welsh Government's long-term plan for the future of health and social care. Uh, It's going to help health and social care organisations on a national, regional and local level to develop new ways of working seamlessly together to improve the response to local needs. The projects are funded through the Welsh Government's Transformation Fund uh, that they have potential to transform the way services are delivered. Uh, the majority of the projects are being led by the regional partnership boards developed in collaboration with patients and are being delivered by the healthcare professionals who work on the front line. Uh, the Resilience Project resource can be accessed, accessed by visiting the Cardiff and the Vale University Health Board website. So hopefully that um, that project uh, could hopefully come towards Rondlecan and Taff as well. I think it'd be really, really vital that they get that, that kind of service uh, also. Um, and I'm sure we'll find out from Cuntaff Morganwick Health Board uh, 
whether or not that is uh, that is the case. There's a bit of a case study as well from Sarah and Alice. They're a mum and daughter, and Sarah and Alice have been supported by the Resilience Project after Alice refused to leave the house for seven weeks during lockdown. Both Sarah and Alice experienced anxiety, and mum Sarah felt she had hit a brick wall since COVID-19. She was unable to support her daughter. Alice's reluctance to go outside was based around a huge fear that her mum and dad would die if she did. The family were linked with the Resilience Project and took part in an assessment with a clinical psychologist and six virtual therapy sessions with a resilience worker, where they were given strategies, advice and ideas on how to manage Alice's anxiety. Sarah said, At first I was feeling heartbroken and couldn't help her at all. It's all just been doom and gloom since lockdown. The Resilience Project sessions helped so much through uh, giving me lots of ideas and guidance. They were really encouraging and even praised me as a parent, which helped my confidence. They were understanding and took their time with me now, uh, so now I feel much better. It's not only helped Alice, but it's also helped me too. The difference in her is amazing. She's thriving, and I'm absolutely astounded by how amazing they are. It's a great story. That's Alice, uh, Sarah and Alice, who are a mum and daughter, who have been supported by this Resilience Project. For more information, if you head on over to the Cardiff and the Vale uh, website, Health Board website, you can read what they're up to there. Uh, and like I said, we'll uh, we'll see what the uh, Cumtaf Maganuk Health Board um, are doing, if it's going to be kind of rolled out across areas. We're going to get some more music on now. And then on the other side of this, a new feature for Headspace this month where I've got my tip of the week to help you uh, with your well-being mentally. This is Lisa Loeb now on GTFM. Headspace. GTFM's Mental Health and Wellbeing Programme. So welcome along if you just joined us. It's Colin Dixon with you through till nine o'clock this evening on Headspace. And a new feature this month is uh, my tip to maintain mental health well-being and get yourself into a good position uh, and such like that. Uh, this month I'm focusing on relaxation and here are mine's eight tips to relaxation. Here are eight relaxation tips to help you look after your well-being when you're stressed, busy or worried. One, take a break. Take some time away from your normal routines or thoughts. Read a book or magazine, even if it's only for a few minutes. Run yourself a bath, watch a film, play with your pet, chop some vegetables and cook a meal. Two, focus on your breathing. Learning to breathe more deeply can make you feel a lot calmer and increase your sense of well-being. Breathe in through your nose and breathe out through your mouth. Try to keep your shoulders down and relaxed. Place your hand on your stomach. It should rise as you breathe in and fall as you breathe out. Try counting as you breathe. Start by counting to four as you breathe in and four as you breathe out. Then work out what's comfortable for you. Three, listen to music. Listen to your favourite songs. Turn it up and dance or sing along or put your headphones on and close your eyes. Really listen to the music. Can you pick out different instruments? Can you hear a drum beat or a certain rhythm? 
Let yourself focus on the music and let other thoughts drift away. Four, picture yourself in a relaxing place. Think of somewhere relaxing and peaceful. You might choose a memory of somewhere you've been or a place you've imagined. Close your eyes and think about the details of this place. What does it look like? What kind of colours and shapes can you see? Can you hear any sounds? Is it warm or cool? Let your mind drift and your body relax. Five, try active relaxation. Relaxation doesn't have to mean sitting still. Gentle exercise can help you relax too. Look for a gentle exercise class in yoga, pilates or gentle stretching. Take a gentle walk, going at your own pace. You might choose to go for a longer walk, but even a few minutes of walking can help you feel relaxed. Six, use a guided relaxation exercise. Guided relaxation or meditation exercises are widely available and lots of them are free to use. You can search online, look for an app to download or see if your local library has any books or CDs. Have a look for local meditation or relaxation classes. You could try your local mind or use an internet search engine. 7. Get creative. Getting in touch with your artistic side can help you feel more calm and relaxed. Try painting, drawing, making crafts, playing a musical instrument, baking and sewing. Try not to worry too much about the finished product and focus on enjoying yourself. 8. Spend time in nature. Spending time outside and in green spaces can be great for your physical and mental well-being. You could take a walk in the countryside or through a local park. Taking time to notice trees, flowers, plants and animals you see on the way. Or you could spend some time taking part in conservation, whether that's digging in your own garden or taking part in a local green project. Don't worry if one technique doesn't work for you. Try it a few times, and if it doesn't feel effective, move on to a different exercise. Try to let go of your worries, and take time to enjoy the exercises. Some great tips there from Mind. Do you want more tips? Mind.org.uk is the place to go. And one activity you can try to do to help relieve the stresses and tensions in your muscles as they can become tight and tense, especially when you've had uh, a tough day. Uh, the ex- this exercise um, helps you notice tensions in your body and then helps you relax your muscles. So what do you need then? Uh, so if you've got a pen and paper, you can jot this down. Or actually, if you want to uh, follow along at home, you're more than welcome to do so. Uh, so what you need, you need somewhere comfortable to sit or to lie down and you need a space where you won't be interrupted so if you've got a cat who's a bit crazy and he'll jump on you or a dog try and put him in the other room just for five minutes or so what do you do so number one you lie down and you sit with your back straight and your feet on the floor close your eyes and focus on a spot in the distance step two you should start clenching your toes as much as you can for seconds then releasing them notice the difference between the two feelings feel what it likes uh, when you tense up and then feel what it's like when you release them 
Number three, match this to your breathing. Tense your muscles as you take a deep breath in, and then you relax as you take a deep breath out. Step four, move your body to your thighs, your stomach, and all the way to your shoulders and your hands, clenching and relaxing each muscle in turn. Take time to notice any parts of your body that feel tense, tight, or tired. You can repeat it as much as you need if you still feel tense. Step five, take a moment to relax. If you're lying down, slowly start to move. Don't rush up. Gently begin to move around. And when you feel ready, you can stand up slowly. Hopefully, and little tips, just help relax your body. Get rid of all that tension, all that stress out of you. And you can, uh, you know, you feel like you've just released all that pressure from the day. If you want more information on tips for mental health well-being, visit mind.org.uk. Loads of great resources on there. Right, we'll play a tune after this. We're going to be speaking to Neil Pimer, Creative Director at Ardman Animations. It's London Grammar on GTFM. This is strong. It's just coming up to quarter to nine. It's Headspace, GTFM's dedicated mental health and well-being show with myself, Colin Dixon. Hope you are very well this evening. Uh, busy show already through um, through talking around the Eating Awareness Disorder Week and all, uh, and speaking to James and to Anne Harrod, and we've heard from the First Minister. Next, uh, we're going to speak to Neil Pimer. Now, Wallace and Gromit, Shaun the Sheep, Creature Comforts have all been produced from the animation company Ardman. Their latest project has seen a series of five short animations highlighting some of the key issues experienced by young people, such as loneliness, perfectionism and competitiveness. Let's take a look at to one of the other topics covered by Ardman on social media. Hmm. Everyone likes Daisy. Not that I care. So what if she's got thousands of followers? I really, really don't care. Anyways, I've got my lovely garden. Ugh. Who'd want to look at this? Or at me. Well, I kind of like my garden. And I kind of like me. A bit. So you do you, Daisy. And I'll concentrate on me. So that's one of the uh, animations that Ardman created. To talk more about this, I caught up with creative, di- creative director of Ardman, Neil Pimer. So the Arts and Humanities Rights Council came to us with the project and had seen some of our previous work that we'd done around Alzheimer's and postnatal depression. And they wanted to pair us up with some of their researchers and our animation expertise to create um, a project around mental health in young people which obviously we we jumped to the chance to take on board so what's up with everyone is the sort of culmination of that project and it's a series of five animated films uh, a website and a social media campaign which is really about kind of improving mental health literacy in young people reducing stigma and opening up conversation like you said it's for uh, 17 to 24 year olds and it's for people who you know young people who might be moving away from home starting university moving away from their support networks and dealing with things that they haven't really had to before uh, and we wanted to create a kind of toolkit to help them deal with these difficult times and i must say the website i had a look at the website and it's fantastic the amount of content and detail that goes into that is just it's amazing because you do see some mental health sites where actually the, the it's a bit difficult to kind of read through and and think your website and the videos themselves make it really clear to understand some of these issues that the young people might be facing 
Yeah, I think that's that's something we've really wanted to focus on. I think with with young people in this group, they can be very easily put off if it feels like, you know, a government message or it feels very teachery, I guess. And we really wanted to make sure that this was in their language and, and that it was relatable. And to sort of achieve that, which was a really interesting part of this project, is we spoke to young people from the very start all around the UK to work out what were their problems, what um, mental health challenges do they face, what do they understand about it, and what can we do to offer help around that. And then we actually worked with young people through the entire process of the project so they helped with the scripts the designs the animatics uh, and even voiced some of the characters as well wow. so you know we, we we really wanted to ensure that this was for them and 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 was was right and you talk about the stigma a little bit there neil and mental health stigma is still quite prevalent in society at the moment i think even more so in the young people because there is that kind of bravado that they have to have when they're either in college or coming out of sixth form and it's kind of like i need to be strong and all that how important is for media such as yourselves um, to highlight mental health issues and ensuring people that are especially younger generation are aware of looking out, out for themselves just from a mental health perspective and how important is it to break down that stigma I think it's really, really important. And I think um, animation is quite unique in the fact that it can tell these sort of really difficult and complex subjects in really um, easy to understandable and relatable ways. So I think it's really important for us to try and um, use our voice and our audience and, and animation to try and get through you know what can be really difficult things to understand and process but I think with this project we really wanted to do was start conversation we know that this project on its own isn't going to tackle something as difficult um, as, as, as the mental health uh, problems that are around at the moment but we did want to just start discussions and sort of catch these issues earlier on before they became a big problem so this is why we sort of crafted these five different themes around perfectionism independence loneliness and isolation competitiveness and social media you know they aren't the sort of standard you know more hard-hitting things like depression mm. and self-harm we wanted to try and get these these more umbrella things which, which dealt with a lot of different um, aspects and situations that young people face and if this project you know at least just gets people talking about mental health a bit more um, and reaching out for help if they if they need it then hopefully we've done our job and i think it's really important and i asked this to of all my guests around the the importance of keeping the conversation of mental health going post-pandemic i think is really really key at the moment neil isn't it and i think with the legacy of what your animation and the website and that i think that's going to be a real legacy kind of go-to site isn't it Definitely. I mean, when we first um, came up with the idea, when myself and uh, Daniel Bins have been working on it, for, who's, who's, he's the animation director uh, and designed all these wonderful characters, um, we had no idea we'd be launching in a pandemic and yeah. that these sort of themes would be even more pertinent. Uh, and there was a point where we decided, well, should we actually mention the pandemic within these animations? And mm. we decided not to just because, you know, we didn't want it to date and we wanted it, like you say, to have a longer legacy. But, you know, really, we just see this as the first step. And we really hope that we've sort of created this world, we've created these characters dealing with these these issues that young people face, and and hopefully we can take that further, and and this campaign can can go on, you know, way beyond and hopefully create other content post this project. Some of the researchers who've been working with, so we've been working with the mental health mental. We've been working with the Mental Health Institute at University of Nottingham, which is run by Professor Paul Crawford, and the Storytelling Academy at Loughborough University, the London School of Economics, and we're advised by Dr. Dominique Thompson. So some really clever people behind this. Mm. We're, we're, we're animators, and we, we needed that support <laughs> to, to be able to make sure that, that you know it, it had that backing. But what's really interesting is the researchers are actually looking into the effectiveness of these videos. Do they, do they land? Do they work? Are they doing their job? Um, and are they starting this conversation? 
conversation. So hopefully we can sort of take that information and 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 create more better content from that research. And I think it's really important to to do this kind of research and sort of take public health engagement and be more creative with it. If we're going to sort of reach this really tough demographic. Um, I think we need to to, to try and to try and you know be, be a bit more risky and create different campaigns. I think as well, I, it, it is kind of that thinking outside of the box. How can you make that maximum impact to? an audience which is traditionally especially in the millennial generation very difficult to capture their attention how difficult is that for an animation company like yourselves to to get that sweet spot of actually we're, we're going to engage them here yeah Hartman's characters are generally for a younger audience and for us it's really interesting taking these characters and putting them into sort of slightly older situations mm. which is quite unique i think and yeah there were some subtle differences we did with the the character design to age them up and the sort of color palette of the websites and just making sure that although it sort of has reference to childhood animation that it, that it didn't feel young at all that it felt it felt much more adult so that was that was a really exciting process for us and is it going to stop at the five um films that you've already already created now at the moment or are you going to be looking at other different subjects uh, as time progresses currently it will be these five animations but we've got a lot of stuff happening on social media with other little bits of content and like i said we would love to be able to take this project further i think you know this is hopefully just the tip of the iceberg it's such a, a universal problem mental health that i think the more we can do the more content we can create and the more people we can get talking about it the better so hopefully there will be more but as well as the films obviously we've talked about the website there's a load of really interesting content there we worked with all of the mental health experts that i just mentioned to to, to to create that but also with young people as well to make sure that it was in their language so hopefully there's a lot of useful information there self-help tips and you know should anyone need further help there's there's links out to some really good support too we'll share that on our facebook page as well and on our website and get everyone to link in through there can you talk us through the creative process of creating these films yeah definitely well i'm animation animation is quite slow at the best of times Um, and during the pandemic it was uh, even slower but you know we feel really proud that we've created something in the pandemic everyone working from home we had a group of young people that we were talking through through the whole process like i said you know helping with the scripts and the animatics and obviously all of that was was on zoom and they they did an amazing job and the the project wouldn't have been what it is without their input when we first took the scripts they're so so different um to how they ended up Mm. because of the young people's inputs we had quite a lot of sarcasm in there and in fact their input made them a much more subtle and gentle project so yeah the humor's still there but their input was really 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 invaluable when it came to the so when it came to the characters the young people as well they thought it it was really important that they were as relatable as possible and as inclusive as possible Mm. which is kind of why we chose um animals Uh, I think animals kind of have this universal appeal and it makes it much easier for people to project themselves into those kind of situations. So, yeah, uh, that that, that was a a really interesting process as well. So animation generally always starts with scripts and the written word and those scripts will be honed and honed and honed until they're they're right. Uh, And then we do um, storyboards, which are sort of really rough drawings of of all the little beats of the animation. And then those are turned into a rough animatic where we might add some sort of scratch vocals. But then you get a feeling of the pace and how it's working and do the jokes land is it you know is it a cohesive piece and then once that's signed off we then go into full production which will be character design lighting backgrounds and and get into all the detail so again it depends what kind of uh, process you're using whether it's stop motion or 2d or cgi but uh, that's the 
sort of general process that we that we undertake. This obviously was um, even more interesting because we had the young people as our clients, if you yeah. like, <laughs> feeding back and telling us where we should change things. So yeah, that was really invaluable. Neil, I w- would like to thank you for your time uh, this evening, and thank you very much for joining us. It's been a real insight, and uh, it's quite refreshing to see um, another a, a new spin on how to tackle mental health, and especially within our younger generation. Uh, that's Neil Pimer, creative director of Ardman Animations. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having us. So if you want to find out more about the What's Up With Everyone campaign and to watch the short animations, all you need to do is head on over to the website whatsupwitheveryone.com. That's whatsupwitheveryone, all one word, dot com. And you can find out more about that. Bit of elbow now on the headspace. This is Dear Friends. It's six minutes to nine o'clock. It's one of my favourite bands, Elbow and Dear Friends. Take it from the album, The Seldom Seen Kid. It's GTFM, it's Headspace, GTFM's mental health and wellbeing show. If you've missed any of the information on this month's programme, you can listen again via GTFM Podcasts, a brand new service from GTFM that allows you to listen again, but without the music. GTFM Podcasts is available on Spotify and iTunes. Download, listen and share. Further information is available from, via the GTFM website, gtfm.co.uk forward slash Headspace.